Many years ago, Riley Knight completed a degree in history. This proved to be a bad move, as it was absolutely useless for him. Until now, here's some half-assed history. What's going on, mate? Great to have you along for some more half-assed history. This week on the agenda, going to be having a chat about Yi Sun Sin, who was a Korean admiral. Well, actually, not a Korean admiral. He was rather the Korean admiral. This bloke, he's got to be one of the greatest naval commanders in history. Everyone's heard of, you know, Admiral Togo and Lord Nelson and all the rest of them. But I tell you what, Yi is right up there with him, or even above them, according to actually according to Togo himself, who who once said, "It may be proper to compare me with Nelson, but not with Korea's Yi Sun Sin, for he has no equal." Now, look, Yi isn't particularly well known throughout the world, but in Korea, in both Koreas, in fact, he is seen as an absolute bloody hero, and there is a good reason for this. While fighting off a Japanese invasion of the Korean Peninsula, Yi never lost a single sea battle. But more than that, he never lost a single ship. His career was fraught with political enemies, with wrongful demotions and injuries and battles against hopeless odds and all sorts of stuff. But he rose to the top, did ye? And most amazingly, I mean, I've already said he's one of the greatest naval naval tacticians, strategists. He's just a genius in that regard, in, 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 in history, right? Never had any naval training. Not a skerrick of it. He never had any kind of training as a naval officer at all. And he still is one of the best in the business. And if his exploits on the battlefield weren't enough, on top of that, he also resurrected an old type of ship that revolutionized Korean naval warfare at the time. And today there are statues and temples and honors and all sorts of stuff from his legacy. Very, very strong today, especially again over there in Korea. In short... He's a pretty bloody big deal, mate. So it's time we got down to business to learn a thing or two about this bloke, what he was all about. So we're going all the way back to 1545 today, the 16th century, and uh, specifically to the 28th of April, 1545, when Yi was born. He had, a, he had a quite old childhood, apparently. He liked playing war games and stuff like that with his mates as a kid, but it doesn't seem like too much interesting stuff happened while he was young. In fact, it was actually years and years until he even popped up as a military man. He didn't join up properly until 1576, by which time he's obviously in his 30s. And his military career didn't get off to a smooth start either. He failed his first attempt at, uh, at passing the uh, the grueling Korean military examination because uh, he was chucked off his horse during a cavalry exam and he broke his bloody leg, the poor, poor bloke there. Anyway, um, uh, the second time, second time around, it's the charm for him and he, he becomes a junior officer at the, uh, at the relatively advanced age of 34. So he's a little bit behind the times here. But still, he's doing a bloody good job. He's helping uh, the Korean military fight uh, the Jurchen, who are a bunch of bandits up from Manchuria who kept attacking Korean border towns. Um, and at one point, he actually impressed his superiors quite a lot uh, by meeting the, the Jurchen in battle and capturing and killing their leader. So all of a sudden, he's got eyes on him as a real up-and-comer. But uh, unfortunately for him, not all the eyes belong to people who actually wish him well here. In fact, there were some blokes who were, who were green with envy because of his successes, and, and they, they start to see him as a, as a, as a threat threat to their careers. Now, obviously, this, you know, it's starting to sound like the bloody Sith Empire here, but one bloke, General Yi Il, right, he started to tell Porkies about how our mate Yi had deserted during a battle and all sorts of other character and uh, character assassination type stuff as well. And unfortunately, this sort of stuff, very common, very common indeed. Korean politics at the time were actually very Sith-like indeed, as you were generally incentivized to, you know, sabotage the careers of other, uh, of other people who, who you might see as, you know, being in contest with you uh, in order to advance your own. Anyway, look, 
This character assassination against poor old Yi, it ends up being very effective indeed. He's arrested, he's imprisoned, he's stripped of his rank, and worst of all, he's actually tortured. This is terrible. Like, it's pretty, pretty bloody rough stuff for our mate here. Really no good, but I'll tell you what. He takes it on the chin. He lets it all happen. And then once he's released, right, once he's released, he goes back to fighting as an enlisted soldier. He's had his rank stripped off him. He's had all of his title and all the, you know, all the success and that sort of stuff. It's all been done away with, right? But, I mean, bloody talk about loyalty to your country. This bloke is unbelievable. He's just gone back, start, start right at the bottom once again. Thing is, though, thing is, you can't you can't keep a player down. And he he didn't last long as an uh, as an enlisted man. Before long, he's getting promotion, promotion after promotion. He's in charge of a training center for a while, and then he becomes a military magistrate, and then he becomes the commander of an entire province. And he starts picking up more and more and more responsibility. And then, by the time we get to fifteen ninety, Yi is in charge of, of of several entire garrisons and a naval district. So he's really come up in the world in a long way. Uh, you know, again, after having started once again from the bottom, he's worked his way up towards the top here. And he, he, again, our boy, he done come up once again. But his appointment as the commander of the left Geolia Naval District, right, this naval district I talked about, it proved to be a particularly decisive one here for his career because he institutes a stack of reforms to this sort of regional navy that he's in charge of. He builds it up in strength, but he also he starts to construct turtle ships. Now, these were the ones I mentioned before in the introduction here. Turtle ships, they'd been experimented with uh, centuries before, but now they're back in a big way, thanks to Yi. A turtle ship, in case you don't know what it is, it's a, a, a sort of a smallish, very tough ship that basically just had a had a roof over the top of it with spikes on, right? Now, the roof might have been made of metal, might have been made, made of wood, we're not sure, but there were spikes sticking out of it that definitely were made of, uh, of metal there. And it had sails sticking up on, uh, out of the roof on the top there, and uh, it could also use oars, and had portholes on the sides that cannons could fire out of. There's also a, a U-shaped bottom rather than a V-shaped bottom that we'd expect, which meant that not only was it very good at getting through the uh, the tricky and sometimes very treacherous waters around the Korean uh, coastlines there, it could also turn basically on its own uh, on its own radius. It could turn on a dime, I think, you, you know, a good way to say it there. And all of this, right, meant that it was the perfect counter to the prevailing Japanese naval strategy, which involved archers and uh, ramming uh, before grappling, using grappling hooks to, to board enemy ships and fight hand-to-hand. They tended to use a lot of troop transports rather than actually armoured ships themselves. And, uh, you know, they would, they, would, they would speed down onto enemy ships, board them and kill everyone on board, and that's how they'd take over. Now, of course, a turtle ship with a roof with spikes, very, very difficult to board indeed. And those cannons are going to rip apart any approaching uh, troop transports very swiftly indeed. But perhaps the most famous thing about the turtle ships, the most famous thing, was the big dragon head that would be whacked up there on the front of it. Initially, they were just there to you know look look cool and be very scary, but after a while, they were hooked up to a mechanism that could belch out all this sort of this sulfurous smoke, which would not only uh, obscure the ship from the enemy's sight, but also, obviously, much more importantly, look extremely bloody cool. Never mind just a dragon head. Dragon head now spitting fire, and in some cases, even had cannons put into them all. Or, or incendiary devices, right? Which is just the best. I mean, this is actual, as close to, you know, actual dragon stuff that we're getting. It's fantastic, right? Now, you might think, and I think a lot of people do think, turtle ships, very slow, lumbering. No, not at all. They were very agile. They could, they could again, turn on the spot, but they, they were kind of quick over short distances. They could put on big bursts of speed and they could ram and do all sorts of other stuff like that. And they were very bloody effective. Very, very effective indeed. They ram into ships, blast them with their cannons. And, and soon, as we'll discover again, I'll talk about, about it more, the perfect foil to the prevailing Japanese naval strategy at the time. Anyway, it's all thanks to old mate Yi that the Koreans are jumping aboard these turtle ships. Once again, their ranks swelling as Yi reformed and modernized his regional navy. And I'll tell you what, 
Tell you what, bloody good thing that he did this too, because on the other side of the Sea of Japan, guess who is planning an invasion of Korea? Mate, you are so bloody smart. I've always said this. Yes, absolutely. It was indeed Japan. Well done. In 1592, the Japanese launched a series of attempted invasions of the Korean Peninsula and Guess who's there to try to stop them? Right again, you absolute genius. It was our good mate Yi Sun Sin. I'll tell you this too. The invasion got up, got off to an absolutely disastrous start for the Koreans. Terrible it was. The Japanese, they managed to land troops without too much difficulty in Busan and Dadejin. And uh, they captured them nice and easy, uh, these port towns, and then marched towards Seoul. And uh, the Korean army capitulating, losing battle after battle, making an absolute mess of things. They were total bloody disaster. But... Even with the army making an absolute dog's brekkie out of the whole situation, our mate Yi, he wasn't just going to roll out the welcome mat for the Japanese. Oh, no. Now, at this point, I want to mention something. I think I said it in the intro, but it's probably worth reminding you here that this bloke, right, Yi, he didn't have a lick of training as a naval officer. He had no training with naval tactics or strategy or nothing like that. He was just a bloke who happened to be put in charge of some ships one day. But that didn't stop Yi from absolutely rising to the occasion here and taking the fight to the Japanese as they tried to solidify their position in Korea with their, obviously, their continued presence on land, but also at sea. And this is where Yi really, uh, really turned the screws on me. He he leapt into action, tried to seize control of the seas around Korea, off the Japanese there, uh, fighting battle after battle after battle with the Japanese in the coming months as the invasion attempt obviously continued and was sort of stepped up or, uh, you know, increased by the uh, by the Japanese forces. And I'll tell you this, he got off to an absolute flyer. You wouldn't believe it. Absolute flyer with his first ever naval battle, the first experience he really had of actually like commanding a ship here, the Battle of Okpo on the 17th of June in 1952. Remember, this bloke never fought a, a naval battle before, but that didn't stop him from attacking and ripping apart a Japanese fleet. Yi, alongside uh, another commander named Won Gyun, right? They attacked 50 Japanese ships with their fleet of 43 warships. They sank over half of them just like that. Pretty bloody incredible way to open the innings there. Yi, old son, nice job. Um, doesn't really matter that the 50 Japanese ships were empty and moored at harbour while the Japanese while the Japanese troops were ashore looting but that you know that definitely still counts still counts well done he's won his first battle he's off the mark now hilariously the entire count of casualties during this battle for the Koreans was in total three men injured they didn't even die. No Koreans died during this battle. And two of the injured blokes had been hit by friendly fire. They'd been shot by their mates, right? They'd boarded a Japanese ship and they were mistaken for, for enemy combatants by Koreans on another ship um, nearby. And so they got, yeah, a little bit shot there. So, I mean, you know, still rock solid way to open the account there. Zero deaths, no ships lost. Yi has uh, opened the account with style, I would say. And he, he's gone, and after this as well, he's gone from strength to strength. He's hunted down and destroyed Japanese ships throughout the region. He's, the next month, in, in July 1592, Yi heard of a Japanese fleet that was harboured in, uh, in Sacheon and so set sail to go there and give him what for. And sure enough, a small fleet of, of 12 Japanese ships is docked there at Sacheon, but they're in the harbour, of course, they're well defended and they're very difficult to attack properly. So, Yi goes, no worries. Here's what we'll do, fellas. Let's send in a few ships to feign an attack, right? Then turn around, start to flee straight away, and hopefully they'll give chase. So, Yi sails in towards the Japanese, pretends, oh, bloody hell, what have I done here? Pretends to retreat, right, once he's spotted. And sure enough, the Japanese, they take the bait and they start sailing out in pursuit. And once they're out out of the safety of the harbour, the Korean turtle ships emerge and descend on the Japanese ships and they blast them to bits with their cannons. And of course, I mentioned the Japanese Navy, so poorly equipped to deal with these turtle ships, they can't board them or attack them effectively with their bows or their guns, nothing, right? Apparently, 
the Japanese lost every single ship that they'd had at the Battle of Sacheon, all the big ones anyway, they're all sunk. And once again, the Koreans escaped with barely a scratch. Only five Koreans were injured. There were no Korean deaths again. But one of the injured Koreans was, unfortunately, I'm very sorry to say, say our mate, our mate Yi Sun Sin. He, he'd taken a bullet in the shoulder from a Japanese gun there, poor bloke. But I tell you what, something as trivial as, you, you know, getting shot wasn't going to stop our mate uh, Admiral Yi here. So he continues his spree of destruction. He sinks 21 more Japanese ships at the Battle of Dangpo on the 10th, the 10th of July, and then 26 more three days later at the Battle of Danghangpo. And have a guess... How many Korean ships were sunk during these two battles? Mate, you've done it again. What a guess you've made. You are absolutely spot on. A goose egg. Absolutely zero. Unbelievable. And of course, let's not forget, he did all this after having just been bloody shot a day or two before. This bloke cannot be contained. No brakes on the Yi train. Toot toot. You bastard invaders. Next stop, the bottom of the bloody sea for you, mate. Anyway. As you might imagine, as you might expect here, the Japanese, they were none too pleased by Yi's exploits and their leader, Toyotomi Hideyoshi, is spitting chips, mate. He, he reinvigorates the Japanese fleet. He gets, a, uh, he gets a whole ton of new ships all loaded up and he sends them off for another tilt of the old windmill there. And uh, he aids this, uh, this new attempt by ordering a bunch of high-ranking officers away from their land-based campaigns, which again are going pretty well for Japan, let's not forget about that, uh, instead to take to the sea using basically more or less anything that'll float as, a, as, as part of the Japanese Navy at this point. So the Japanese fleets are massive, and the Koreans, right, uh, they've only got about 70 or so ships, uh, well, at least Admiral Yi does anyway, but that doesn't matter. The thing is, right, they've got a stack of other advantages over the Japanese here, and this is what really counts. Despite the war going so badly on land, morale is still very high amongst Yi's navy because he's just been winning and winning and winning. And on top of that, the training and the reforms that Yi had enforced on his navy meant that he'd, he had fiercely loyal and exceptionally skilled men at his disposal. And on top of that... The Koreans were better equipped to fight and manoeuvre with, you know, their their, uh, their flat-bottom boats in shallow tidal, wa- tidal waters and cannons and all the rest of it. And of course, let's not forget these turtle ships, the best possible defence against the Japanese strategy of boarding and fighting hand-to-hand at sea there. Anyway, Hideyoshi, none, you know, nonetheless, forget about all this, Hideyoshi, he's still going to get it done, he decides, and so he sends off another another wave of invaders. And Yi now has to, uh, to, to rise to another challenge here in order to defend his homeland. Now, the Koreans, they're prowling around their waters. They're trying to hunt down and sink any Japanese ships they come across. And on August the 13th in 1592, they, they spot a fleet of about, about 115 Japanese vessels, so big, big fleet here, anchored in a strait near Hansan Island. Now, you would think that the Japanese might have uh, learnt their lesson from Sachion here, but it turns out they did not. Because once again, Yi, he sees this massive big, uh, this anchored fleet here, and he says, righto, you blokes, run it back, same as before, in you go, out you come, turtle ships, blast them to smithereens, you know how it goes, we'll lure them out, they'll take the bait, it'll be easy. So Yi, he sends in six or so ships to draw aggro and then kite away from the Japanese fleet. And wouldn't you bloody know it, it it completely works. It works. It totally works. The Japanese fleet mobilizes immediately to give chase and emerge from this strait where they were well protected right into a semicircular envelopment of Korean ships, including a bunch of these impregnable 
turtle ships. The Koreans, they fire volley after volley after volley at the Japanese, who didn't, you know, they didn't really have cannons themselves. Instead, as I said, prefer to get up close and personal here, and this is to their detriment, I can tell you that, because as the Japanese try to close the distance between them and the Koreans, the Koreans, they just keep kiting away, blasting them as they did so, and they keep their distance from the Japanese grappling hooks very effectively indeed. Yi gave strict orders not to engage with any Japanese ships at close range, unless they were basically about to sink, and his strategy is resoundingly successful. The Japanese lose almost 60 of their ships blasted to bit by, bits by Korean uh, cannons there or captured by Yi's men and they lose hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of lives. And the Koreans lose a grand total of 19 lives. So for those keeping score at home, Japan has lost thousands of men and well over 100 ships to Admiral Yi, while he has lost exactly zero ships, 19 lives, and he himself was one of the blokes who was injured. It is fair to say that the Koreans are giving them an absolute hiding on the water, and it won't surprise you to learn that after the Battle of Hanson Island, old mate Hideyoshi orders his navy to immediately stop fighting. He realises he just cannot beat Yi. He cannot beat him. He's a smart bloke. He realises he cannot beat Yi. And there are stories apparently emerging of Japanese sailors leaping off their ships, abandoning their ships and swimming for shore when they see Yi coming. That's how bad it is. So Hideyoshi has to do something. It's no it's no surprise that Yi is hailed as an absolute hero. His command has expanded, his reputation at all time high, and people are bloody loving him. But despite Hideyoshi's orders to stop all naval campaigning, there are still Japanese ships out and about here and there, and Yi is still mercilessly hunting them down with his turtle ships. Now, all in all, depending on what you, you count as a battle, he's winning by about 15 to nil here. He's doing a bang-up job, you'd reckon. However, despite Yi's successes, the Japanese are still doing very well on land and in, you know, in Korea itself. And, and this is where Hideyoshi now focuses his attention. He's decided he's going to do something about Admiral Yi, and this is what he does. He orders... All the ports that Japan captured to be fortified and armoured against attacks from the sea, and again reiterated that there wasn't to be any more fighting on the water because he knew that the Japanese would lose. But he's determined to get rid of Yi in a different way. And in the time after all these battles were fought, while Yi's going around hunting, uh, hunting down Japanese ships, he comes up with a plan. Rather than fight him in a military capacity, he decides instead to go after him politically, right, with the use of a double agent. Hideyoshi goes to a bloke named Yoshira, who is a Japanese spy, and he says, listen here, mate, here's your mission. You're going to hop back over to Korea, and you're going to offer to be a spy for them. But obviously, you'll actually keep working for me. Obviously, you understand. And Yoshira goes, mate, no dramas at all. Typical double agent stuff, easy game. So Hideyoshi says, right, listen, what are you going to do? You're going to get in there. You're going to earn their trust, all that sort of thing. And then once you reckon you've got them on the hook, right, that's when we lay a trap for old mate Yi. And Yashira goes, mate, this sounds bloody excellent. I'll pop over there right now, start brown-nosing all the Korean top brass, won't be an issue. So Yashira, he goes over to Korea and he poses as a defector, as a turncoat, so as to meet a bloke named General Kim Gyeong Seo. And he says, how are you going there, General Kim? I'll tell you what, bloody sick of working for Hideyoshi I am. I'm ready to turn me coat here, start spying for you. How, how would you like a little bit of a bloody, you know, a, a little bit of a spy in the ranks over there in Japan? And Kim goes, mate, that is excellent news. Welcome along. Great to bloody have you here. You go off and do some spying and uh, yeah, whatever else, and we'll, and we'll see what's what. So now, obviously, this is a long con here, so it takes a while. And, and Yoshira, he takes his time in building up Kim's trust for him, giving him little, you know, snippets of information here and there until Kim trusts 
him completely. And at this point, Yoshira puts the next part of Hideyoshi's plan into action. He goes to Kim and he says, mate, listen, I've got a, I've got a scoop. I've got a big scoop here, right? Big bloody news, eh? And Kim goes, mate, what is it? Bloody hell, I hope it's, you know, what is nothing too bad, I hope. And Yoshira says, I'll tell you what, you're not going to like it. You're not going to like it. I'll tell you this, because get a load of this. Old mate Hideyoshi, he is planning another big naval attack. Great big bloody fleet they've got. Here's where they're going to attack. What do you reckon? Look at this here on the map. Looks pretty bloody grim, doesn't it? What are we going to do about it? Now, Kim goes, oh, jeez, bloody hell, that is no good. Going to have to send this one up the chain, I reckon. And then this absolute snake of a double agent, he says, right? He says, all sneaky like, because this, this is the whole thing he's been trying to do the entire time. He says, General, mate, mate. If, you know, if, if I may be so bold here, if I may make a bit of a suggestion here, I'll tell you what you should do. I'll tell you what you should, you should do. Get that, um, oh, who is he, that bloke, you know, the Admiral, what's his name, Admiral Yi, right? Get him in there, send him in, right? Get him to, like, set up an ambush or something for all those, all those bloody, all those Japanese, oh, they're real, real mongrels, aren't they? Oh, can't stand him, eh? Can't bloody stand him. I'll tell you what, he'll sort him out. He'll, he's never lost a battle at sea, he'll bloody tear him to bits, he will. And Kim goes, mate, that is a bloody excellent idea. I will pass that one on. Great thinking. Thanks so much. So Kim sends the news all the way up the chain to the Korean king, a bloke named Sionjo of Joseon, uh, along with the suggestion that Yi ambush the Korean, uh, sorry, the Japanese fleet, just uh, just like this uh, this turncoat or this you know this this spy here has, has suggested. And King Sionjo, he's all about the idea. He's keen as all hell to beat the Japanese, try to boot them out of Korea, and he thinks this is going to be a, a great way to do it. So it's a big green light for General Kim here. So Kim. He summons Yi and says, mate, here's the plan. You're going to take your ships and ambush this Japanese fleet that's coming. Go and do your thing and send them all to the briny deeps, mate. And Yi goes, mate, can you smell that? Sorry, General Kim, can you, can you, can you smell that? And Kim goes, what are you talking about? I don't, I don't smell anything. He goes, geez, geez, it's a bloody strong smell. I'm pretty sure I can, I'm pretty sure I know what that smell is, mate. I'm pretty, I'm pretty sure that is the smell of a great big bloody rat. And Kim goes, what are you talking about? What are you talking about? I've got this tip off from my best spy. Don't even worry about it. And Yi says, mate, I don't believe it for a second. This place you're trying to set an ambush doesn't make any sense at all. It's dangerous as all hell. To, you know, to even sail there. There's there's bloody submerged rocks and shallow water and all that, all this other sort of stuff. I'm not doing it. It's clearly a trap. It's clearly a Japanese trap. I don't believe it. Yi, right, has sniffed out this whole thing as a Japanese ruse. What a bloody legend he was. He's just figured it out just like that. He's figured out that this is this whole thing is a is some kind of big trap here. And so he refused to do it. Now, unfortunately for our mate, uh, this actually, this didn't go too well for him because you'll remember the uh, the Sith-like politics of Korea at the time and uh, they kicked in good and bloody proper here. And all of Yi's, uh, inter- never mind the Japanese, all of Yi's internal enemies now, they they start to circle around this poor bloke like vultures because they're going to King uh, Sionjo and saying, look at this bloke Yi. He's a coward. He's a traitor. He won't do what you tell him. He won't fight the Japanese. Bloody arrest him, Your Majesty. He's a bad bloody egg, isn't he? And unfortunately, King Sionjo, he listens to these turkeys. And as a result, Yi is arrested. He's imprisoned. And I'm sorry to say that once again, he is tortured to within an inch of his life. King Sionjo wanted even to execute him. But Yi's allies, luckily, able to intervene, talk the king out of it, convince him to spare his life. Although even after all the torture, I'll tell you this, the punishments didn't stop because Yi fully demoted from admiral all the way down to just a common foot soldier. And this was supposed to, of course, be the ultimate dishonour and disgrace, you know, a fate, a fate worse than death for an honourable Korean military leader. But you know what Yi did? Have a guess what he did. He sucked it up, he took it on the chin, and he began to live life, see to his duties as a regular soldier without complaint or anything. He just did his job like nothing had happened, like he was just a regular ordinary soldier there. And he's already 
legendary reputation increased even further amongst all the common soldiers and all the sailors. And I mean, even the other officers who are now in charge of him, in, above him, they, they, they're treating him with deference because they know that he's right about this whole ambush situation. They know he's done nothing wrong. Speaking of which, do you know how things ended up going for the Korean Navy now that there was no year to, uh, you know, to lead them to glory here? I mean, look, things are going a little bit better on land by 1596. The Koreans have called in their Chinese allies, and that's helping out a lot. But the Japanese are still underway with a ma- another major naval invasion here. A lot of the troops sent over by the Japanese, they're not intercepted. They're not challenged because Yi's not there to work his magic and keep the Korean coastline on lockdown. But it gets worse than this because the bloke they put in charge after Yi, this fellow Won Gyeon, the bloke who had attacked Okpo with him earlier, right? He doesn't, honestly, at this point in his career, he doesn't seem to be able to tell his ass from his elbow because he responds to the Japanese incursions by sailing with the entire Korean Navy to Busan to meet them in battle. And he did this without scouting, without planning the attack, just charge in there, she'll be right, we'll teach him a thing or two, don't even worry about it. Wang Gyun, he sends in 150 or even 200 ships and finds the Japanese, right? He finds what, I mean, guess what the Japanese have done? They have a thousand ships ready and waiting in ambush for this Korean fleet. The Japanese ships overwhelm the Korean Navy. They surround them, they board them, and they tear them to shreds. There were as many as 200 Korean ships before this battle, right? And afterwards, right, the ja- after the Japanese have finished with them, there were just 13. 13 Korean ships left out of maybe up to 200 and this was the first naval defeat the Koreans had suffered at the hands of the Japanese throughout this entire invasion. The, and, and it just happened. It just happened to also be the only one where Yi wasn't in charge. Now, the Simpsons and their tiger-repellent rock taught us that correlation does not imply causation, but... I think it's pretty bloody clear what happened here, right? Pretty bloody clear, I would say. And after the um, uh, the 13 remaining warships have sort of limped back to safer waters here, King Sionjoe realises that he has been a colossal goose. He realises what an idiot he's been to sideline Admiral Yi after the absolute hiding that he's just received. And so he goes to him, he pardons him, and at the, you know, at the speed of light basically reinstates him to his previous position. Well, actually, no, he doesn't reinstate him to his previous position, does he? Because in his previous position, when Admiral Yi was kicking goals with both feet, he was in charge of hundreds of ships, wasn't he, mate? And now he's got 13. But do you think that stopped him? Do you think that, mate? Absolutely not. 13 ships, one ship, mate, a bloody canoe. It doesn't matter. Yi, he's going to give it to you. He's going to give it to you. King Sionjo, he thought it was a lost cause, and he said that they should just give up on the sea, but Yi wrote him a letter and he said, your servant still has 12 warships under his command and he is still alive, that the enemy shall never be safe in the West Sea. The guts this bloke had. I tell you what, with 13 ships, he was determined to beat the Japanese. So, The Japanese, they're resting on their laurels at this point. They're confident that even the great Admiral Yi could never hope to beat them with a dozen or so ships. What's he going to do, right? So they send out a fleet to hunt down and destroy the last of the Korean Navy so that then they would you know, be able to rule the waters and send troops and supplies and whatever else from Japan without having to worry about anything. Now, Yi, realising what the Japanese were up to, he draws up his plans. And I'll tell you what, they're a fair bit better than what's what's happened here before. He decided to lure the Japanese fleet out onto a battleground or a battle water, I guess, I don't know, um, of his own choosing, right? And very deliberately chose the Myongnyang Strait, 
as where he'd make his last stand. And this is because the Myeongnyang Strait is full of currents and whirlpools. It's very narrow, very difficult to navigate. And on top of that, it has this powerful, very powerful tidal flow that comes in and out every couple of hours, meaning that only a few Japanese ships could enter it at a time. And even when they're in there, they're going to be tossed around by the currents and whatever else and have a terrible time. Now, the uh, the narrow strait also made it very uh, very uh, very difficult, almost basically impossible, for the Koreans to be outmaneuvered, or, or and obviously they're never going to be surrounded, and it provided them plenty of places to hide in and blast the Japanese to bits uh, from the safety of, of the cover that they had. So, with his location chosen, Yi, if you believe it, right? This is, I mean, first time, sure. I mean, what, what do they say? Fool me once, shame on me. Fool me twice, shame on you. I don't know where the shame's going this time because. Yi runs back the very same trick he'd used before twice to lure the Japanese out. He sends out a scouting ship to the Japanese fleet who, assuming it will sail, you know, they spot it, they go, oh, geez, everyone after that, because it'll go back to Yi, reveal his position. And they send out 333 ships. Basically, every single available ship here, the Japanese fleet, gives chase to this scout. These 300-odd ships, they sail, they zoom after, uh, after this scouting ship towards the strait and then attempt to follow it in small groups into the straits here. And of course, when they do, they find that they're hidden away in these small inlets and coves are the 13 Korean ships armed to the teeth with cannons and artillery, and they blast the Japanese to smithereens. The Japanese, they try to turn around, they're trying to flee, and, but they can't because of the, the currents and the tides, the chaos, they're, they're smashing into each other. They're, they're helping the Koreans in, in their job, you know, sinking ship after ship after ship. The Koreans sank over 30 of the 333 ships that were trying to attack them, despite being outnumbered 25 to 1. And of course, as you would expect, didn't lose a single ship themselves. Mate, get this. Yi's lifetime record as an admiral, it's not even zero battles lost. It's zero ships lost lifetime. Incredible. The Battle of Myeongnyang, it was a turning point in the war between Korea and Japan too. The Japanese had been relying on an uncontested navy to continue to resupply all their troops in, in Korea. And now all of a sudden, Yi was back at it and they couldn't. So, it's all. I mean, even to, the thing. The other thing about this this battle here, the the, the battle of of uh, Myeongnyang here, it's even today one of the most staggering naval victories in history that anyone has ever achieved. A last stand made against insurmountable odds, hopelessly outnumbered, and still. Yi managed to win the day. It is incredible. We have never seen anything like this before or since. Anyway, the war wasn't over, of course, even after this uh, this devastating battle here. The war wasn't over, despite it being a massive victory for the Koreans. It, it actually still continued until 15, you know, well into 1598. And there's one more battle that I want to tell you about here. Yi's very, very last battle. There's a lot of other stuff to unpack and, just, and talk about in this war, but we're going to focus on Admiral Yi here. And, and the last battle he ever took place in, which was the very last battle really of this war as well. The Battle of Noryang. It took place when the Japanese, right, who who were stuck in a little bit of a stalemate on the land on the Korean Peninsula, there, uh, they launched an attack on a blockade that the Koreans, along with their Chinese allies, had set up. Now, this blockade it had trapped a bunch of Japanese ships and a bunch of tr- uh, of Japanese troops, and the Japanese plan was to blast through the blockade, get the tri- the ships out of there, get the troops out of there, quick smart, and sail back to safer waters, reconsolidate, and plan the next move. But Yi 
Of course, he was always a step ahead, and he anticipated exactly what the Japanese were going to try to do uh, in breaking this blockade. Now, at this stage, he's built his, uh, his navy back up a fair bit. He's got about 80 or 85 ships under his command, and, and uh, he used them along, alongside uh, about 60 Chinese ships as well to fight off over 300 Japanese ships. Once again, Yi demonstrated his mastery of naval tactics by positioning the battle where the Japanese would be at the greatest disadvantage. They were squeezed into the Noriang Strait. They had vastly inferior armaments. Yi ships were bigger and stronger and better outfitted and able to position themselves for to, to, to inflict maximum damage on these Japanese ships as they approached there. Of course, you know, he he fully anticipated the the way that the Japanese were going to try to uh, uh, try to fight this battle there. You know, that with their the, resorting to their board and fight hand to hand approach they'd been using for so long, and so he set himself up. He set up his defences ready to counter that strategy well and truly. So. Battle was joined early in the morning of the 16th of December 1598 with the Japanese ships throwing themselves at the Allied blockade again and again and again and again and the fighting, it was vicious and it was terrible and the Japanese were using sheer force of numbers to pressure the Koreans and the Chinese, trying to overwhelm them and get close enough to board with their transports, their grappling hooks and their, you know, their, their ranged weaponry there like that. But the Koreans were blasting away with their cannons, keeping them at bay, trying to use every advantage they could to make sure that they, you know, they kept their uh, their heads in this battle here, and the fighting it lasted until sunrise. It was on, it went on and on and on. It was a very, as I say, very vicious fight there. But after the sun, you know, when the sun starts to rise here, the Japanese finally begin to retreat. They realise that they've lost a bunch of ships, including their flagship. They're in a very, very terrible position here, and uh, things looking very bad. And so they start to uh, they start to get the hell out of dodge. And of course, as they retreat, Yi orders his fleet to pursue. He says, get after them. He's not going to let them get away with it. So it's full steam ahead. Off we go. Let's go and chase down these, uh, you know, all these these blokes who are running away. But tragically, this decision proved to cost Yi his life. I'm very sorry to say. Because as the Korean ships bore down on the retreating Japanese vessels, Yi was shot by a stray Japanese bullet in his upper left torso. And he knew he immediately, as soon as he took this wound, he knew he was going to die. He knew he could tell that it was going to be a lethal injury. And do you know what he did? Only three people had actually seen him take the bullet. Yi Ho, his son, Song Hui Rip, his uh, nephew, and uh, another bloke whose name I wasn't able to find out. And these three blokes, they're bricking it. Obviously, you know, this red-blooded Korean hero, the greatest naval mind the world had ever seen, had just been shot. But he called him over. And he spurred him into action. He, 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 you know, he shook him out of their uh, their state of, of shock there, and he, and he and he told him what to do. He lay there as he he's, he's dying. He's he's literally he's his last moments on earth here, and he and he tells him what to do. And these were his last words. He says, <clears throat> "We're about to win the war. Keep beating the war drums. Do not announce my death." And with that, Yi Sun Sin, one of the greatest naval commanders the world has ever seen, finally died. They hid his body in the cabin. And they removed his armour, which his nephew, Song, then actually put on to make sure the Korean morale didn't crumble. He then went out masquerading as Yi, beating the war drums and bloody shouting and screaming, making sure everyone, all the Koreans were, you know, going to stay in the fight and, and, and with, their, with who they thought there was their commander still at the helm there. And it worked. It worked. The Japanese were driven off. The Koreans won the day. Although, I can tell you, once the battle was finally over... There were some pretty bloody bad vibes after everyone learnt of Yi's death, I can tell you that much. And uh, 
This was actually more or less it for the Japanese attempts at invasions, more or less it for the war. Hideyoshi had died in September. The Japanese land campaign was flagging and now it didn't have any supply lines. The Japanese finally after this in, uh, in, into the next year in 1599, they finally sent peace missions to Korea to negotiate an end to the conflict, which had effectively ended with the Japanese retreat at, at Noryang there. And it was a ultimate, ultimately a victory for, for the Koreans and, uh, and, and their Chinese allies in the long term because they obviously kept the Japanese at bay. They, they prevented them from uh, invading Korea successfully there. And obviously, there's a lot more to that story. We're not going to cover it all today, but you know the 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 war between the between Japan and Korea at this stage very very interesting a lot a lot of stuff going on there but what we're going to talk about all we need to worry about here is our mate Yi he influenced the outcome of the war perhaps more than any single other person admiral yi sun sin had one of the most incredible and illustrious naval careers that the world has ever seen before or since it's it's all the more amazing when you remember his origins not a scrap of naval training no experience at sea before he fir- uh, he fought his first battle there at Okpo. But from that, right, from these origins here, he went on to be one of the most talented naval tacticians in history, never losing a single battle or even more ridiculously, never losing a single ship. He was said to fight along his, alongside his men fearlessly, leading by example. And so it is little wonder that he inspired such fanatical loyalty in them. I mean... When old mate Won Gyun used the same ships and the same men that Yi had led, leading all of these, uh, you know, leading his uh, these all these vessels into the Japanese ambush, it, it, and, and absolutely got his ass handed to him, it goes how much to show that Yi's personal leadership turned the tide of the entire war, and the fact that he endured such horrific hardships at the hands of his own leaders, being imprisoned and tortured and demoted and all the rest of it. And still rose to greatness, still rose to be a national hero. Today, he is seen as this larger-than-life, legendary figure in both North and South Korea. Both have military honours and awards named after him, not to mention countless statues and temples and shrines and monuments and all sorts there. South Korea even named a class of naval destroyer after him, which is obviously most appropriate. And there's even a Taekwondo style that's been named after him. He really is up there with Alexander, Napoleon, Nelson, and all the other huge names from military history. And on top of that, this bloke was just a dead set paragon of virtue, fighting for his country and his people through thick and thin right until he died. I mean, his last words, do not announce my death, go to show what his unending total priority was, the successful defense of his homeland and the victory of his people. So, bloody good on ya. Yi Sun Sin, what a bloke you were. But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. That is the story of Admiral Yi Sun Sin. What a hero he was, and uh, definitely a name that I think more people should be aware of. So I was very, very glad to have done this podcast about him. Anyway... That is that for another week of Half Arse History. Thanks for hanging out with me for uh, for another episode. It's been great to have you along, of course. And uh, all the usual boring housekeeping stuff going on right now. We've got uh, Half Arse History, the website, of course. It's there that there's the contact form. Lots of people getting in touch every week. Thank you so much to all the people doing that. 
Um, and of course, there's links there to not only uh, places you can subscribe on iTunes and Android and, and Spotify, whatever else, but also the Patreon. If you want to chuck us a couple of dollars there, I very, very much appreciate, of course. Absolutely not mandatory, but uh, many people out of the goodness of their hearts are uh, uh, supporting this show financially, and I, and I can't say how much uh, it means to me. So thank you so very, very much for that. Um, again, if you've got any ideas, if you're a patron, maybe you've got any ideas for any, any rewards or anything else that you might like sent out to you, please let me know because I'd be more than happy to uh, to scratch your back seeing as you've been scratching mine so uh, so wonderfully. Anyway, that's just about that. Going to close things out as usual with a question posed on Reddit. Had a very Korean-heavy show this week, of course. And so we've got a Korean-involved question. And it's also got something to do with the sea as well. We've got a, you know, a beautiful marriage of, uh, of, of Korea and their, and their history of, uh, of conflicts on, and in some cases with the sea here. This is a question posed by Reddit historian Jazz75249 who wants to know, why does North Korea keep firing missiles into the sea? Did Aquaman do something to them? 